the chapter. It's a wonderful message here. We saw last week where the 70 were sent out. We'll touch on 70 again this morning for those who weren't here last week so that you can understand. Depending on your translation, you'll read 70 or 72. So we'll touch on it just briefly. But this week, the 70 returned with joy. And then when we go to the Lord's table, you'll probably see in your bulletin that uh, we have a spot for the Apostles' Creed. And we'll all stand and we'll recite that together when we come to the table this morning. Okay? Luke 10, 17 to 20. The 70 returned with joy. Here now, the Word of God. The 70 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. May God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant fallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, a word of comfort for those in storm winds, and a word of rest for the tired and weary and heavy laden. All things to all people that some might be saved. Lord, give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one came here this morning hoping to hear the imagination of a man. But every single person here and by way of the internet as we are live streaming right now, they are hungry and they are thirsty for the revelation of God. May it thunder forth from this pulpit. Change us. Make us more like Christ when we leave than we were when we came in. And those that know not the Christ make this a day of salvation. So, Father, meet us in our place of deepest need, unclutter our minds, and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and Him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Return of the 70 with joy. We're going to look at that in a moment under these three headings. Number one, the power of Jesus. Number two, the protection of Jesus. In Jesus. And we're going to look at what the protection is not. And then finally, number three, the preservation through Jesus. I unpacked briefly the 70 last week. I didn't do it last night, Saturday night. And and a couple people came up and said, I missed last week. Can you tell me about the 70? So I brought it back this week, very briefly. Half the manuscripts have 70, half have 72. Who knows? God knows. We don't. So we try to work through and figure out which one. It doesn't truly matter. However, if Genesis 10 and 11 are in view, which, which half the scholarship is on 70 and the other half's on 72, I land on 70. So if Genesis 10 and 11 are in view, which I think they are, it, it makes sense. 70 really makes sense. There's a number of reasons. Uh, the table of nations are in chapter 10 of Genesis, and then those nations are dispersed in 11 because of the Tower of Babel. Right? You remember that? So it seems to suggest that the number of nations were 70. That was believed at that time. The number of nations were 70, 70 nations. And they were scattered. They wanted to build a a, a tower to to heaven. They wanted to be like God, right? Remember in the garden, same problem again. They want to be, so God says, no, 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 no. Whoosh, and scatters the nations. So Jesus now brings 70 in. Why? Because in Christ it is now a regathering of all nations. 
from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There's the key. We also see Jesus as the greater what? Greater prophet, priest, and king. So he's the greater Moses. Moses had his 70. Jesus has his 70. But it really does seem to suggest that Genesis 10 and 11 are in view. Remember, here's the key in understanding Scripture. Only if you see it covenantally as one word from one God to one world. Only if you see it that way do you see how it all fits together. So it seems to suggest that 10 and 11, but if you had 72 and you felt better about that, that would be okay. We wouldn't be dogmatic. But 70 seems to, to, it seems to be the number. And there seem to be a number of reasons why it fits. Okay? This is a message of, remember, the whole, the whole point of understanding this, this Jesus who's come, he's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. So we're clearly understanding him as the fulfillment of the scattering of the nations. He's regathering them together in himself. And you'll see it through the message and the miracles that take place, even with his 70 that he sends out. So that's, that's enough on the 70, okay? Let's move now to the power. Three headings, and then we'll go to the Lord's table together today. Let us launch out into deep waters, shall we? And let our nets down for a catch. The power of Jesus. Now, Jesus has to prove something in particular, yes? It's nice that he could feed the 5,000 and walk on water, but what is he going to do about these demons, the devil? What's he going to do? Does he have power over them? Is he in control of all things? He has to prove that. He has to make that clear. Remember, he does that, coming down out of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the first thing he does. Peter wants to stay on the mountain. He says, no, we've got work to do. He goes down, casts the demon out of the boy. So we're, we're going to see this, this, this motif through the scriptures in the New Testament. There's the gospel, the power to rescue those who are held captive by the dominion of darkness. And that's where we're at here. Okay? 1017. <clears throat> Ready? The 70. This is under the power. The 70 returned with joy and said, Lord... Even the demons submit to us in your name. So, let's be clear. Where, where does your power lie? In Jesus. Okay? They had no power. They were not a, they, 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 Jesus didn't call the equipped to send them out. He didn't call you equipped to send you. He equips the called. So he calls and he goes with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And off you go to do what he's called you to do. That's what's happened here. And they're, they're overwhelmed. In, in, in the text, it doesn't say that they were to go out and, and chase off the demons. The, the apostles were told that. In 9-1, they were told they'd have power over all demons. We find out after the Mount of Transfiguration, the nine that were left behind couldn't cast out a particular demon for, for lack of faith. The father says to Jesus, your disciples couldn't cast them out, so they come back overwhelmed. Clearly, they healed the sick. They preached the kingdom of God, but they said even demons flee. This is amazing. We couldn't have imagined this. They run from us. We open our mouths. We speak the word of God. Life goes out. Light goes out, and darkness runs and hides. So this is powerful, but it's all, remember, in Jesus' Matthew 121, a couple things to support that. Joseph is ready to divorce his wife. They're not fully married, but in the betrothal, in the ancient world, you were as good as married, unlike our engagement period today. So he's going to give her a certificate of divorce. Why? 
she's pregnant. And how do you get pregnant? Not by the Holy Spirit in his mind, right? This is a supernatural pregnancy. Nothing supernatural about the birth, but the pregnancy was. So he says, I can't. I can't move forward with this. So in a dream, the angel of the Lord comes and says to Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. There's power in the name of Jesus. So now we go to Acts 4.12, and we kind of just sandwich it together. Salvation is found in no one else. Listen carefully. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's only one name under heaven in which we will be saved, the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father apart from me. No one comes to the Father apart from me. So that's the name, the name of Jesus. Okay? There's healing in his name. There's forgiveness in his name. There's salvation in his name. Demons are cast out in his name. The death of death happens in his name. Everything is happening in the name of Jesus. The power, the power of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Okay? We're clear. Now we've got to go to a passage that's really important for us to see. And you'll see it really from a couple perspectives. And I'll be real brief on it. Go to Acts 26, 17 to 18. Paul here is going to recount, listen, he's going to recount his Damascus Road experience. And I have it on the screen for you as well. But he's going to recount it to King Agrippa. He's going to preach the gospel. Remember what we've been talking about in preaching the gospel? Okay, and that's why we're getting ready to launch Disciples Making Disciples on how to to evangelize, not just a postmodern culture, but how to evangelize a a post-Christian and an anti-Christian culture where we have really lost our common language and our frames of reference. They, they don't exist. You'll know this, the difference very quickly when you look at the two major preachers in Acts and both of them preaching, Peter in 2, Acts 2, is preaching to the Jews. So they understand the, the, the message because they have the context of creator God, the fall of man, the promised redemption, So Peter can go immediately to a sinner in need of a Savior. Paul can't do that in Acts 17. Why? He's preaching to Greeks. Greeks have no frame of reference. But here, King Agrippa, Paul says in Acts 26, 2 and 3, I believe it is, you understand the the controversies of the Jews. You understand the the ceremonies of the Jews. You have a basic knowledge of, of the Jewish religion. So Paul now, because he, he, he knows who he's speaking to, because he knows who he's speaking to, he can get right to the heart of the gospel message. For, for most of you today, if you're speaking in public and you're talking to people, you have to take your storyline further back. You've got to go past Genesis 3. You have to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have to get a creator God. Because you're not, you're not dealing with blank slates today. You're not, you're not dealing with a computer that doesn't have a program that's been installed. You have to actually dismantle a worldview that exists. And how do you do that? You can't just say you're a sinner in need of a savior. They just shut you off. And you say, well, that's true. Yes, I know it's true. Well, the power of Jesus. Well, yeah, I know that. I understand that. But do you want to be part of the conversation? Do you want to be invited back in for a second shot at it? I do. So we start the story further back. We go to the beginning. In the beginning, there was a creator God. There's not a multiplicity of gods. There's a creator God. And that creator God made everything good, including you. Everything. We have the only coherent worldview. It's the only one. But you can't start at Genesis 3. You can't do that. Unless 
you have King Agrippa, who understands the Jewish heritage, who understands today, 20 years ago, most people knew it. Today, we have a culture that is exploding spiritually, not your heads, and dying biblically. Even in the church, I'm not just talking about outside, I'm talking in the church, that the whole counsel of God's not being preached. So we're losing our children and sending them off to college because they don't understand that they have a worldview that's coherent. It becomes incoherent to them because they can't explain it. It doesn't make sense when they're speaking to a Buddhist and a Hindu and a secular humanist. And they go, oh, man, I never heard that. I, 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 that that's yeah, there's the multiplicity of views. I guess they all lead in the same place. No. So Paul knows who he's speaking to. And what does he say? The Lord spoke to me on the road to Damascus, and he said this, I'm sending you to them. All right. That was Old Testament motif. Abraham was going to be a father of what? Many nations. Now to do what? Here's a prophecy that is particular to Messiah. To, oh, so he shares this. It isn't going to help you sharing with a millennial today to open the eyes of the blind. What does that mean to them? Nothing. Agrippa knew what it meant. To open their eyes and turn them from what? What's another Old Testament theme? Darkness to light. And from the power, what's another Old Testament theme that Agrippa knew? Satan and the fall of man. Turn them from Satan to what? Creator God. So that they may receive what? He had an understanding of forgiveness of sins. They don't. Doesn't mean anything to them. You can't start there. That's why we're going to teach this whole program. So that you can be comfortable sharing the gospel in an anti-Christian culture. Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He knew his audience. He spoke what the audience could resonate with. Agrippa understood. He was acquainted. Paul said it. You're well acquainted with the Jewish understanding. So here's what Jesus said to me. Here's what he called me to go do. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 2 very briefly here. But thanks be to God who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. This is some strong language, but we'll unpack it in just a second. I'll show you. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. But to the other we are an aroma That brings life. And I'll leave the last line for the end. What is all of that? What does all of that mean when you read something like that? You have to have a little bit of a cultural context to understand it. So so in that cultural context, we have an understanding of the spreading of aroma. And we have an understanding of the context of how that was spread. And it was spread very simply. When, When military in Rome went out and were victorious and came back, they came back with the spoils of war. And much of that were those who were held captive. They're back in chains. And when they came back into town, into a processional, if you will, and the streets were lined, not only would you see the palm fronds and those things for the signs of victory that would be waving, but you would smell the incense that would burn. And that incense to the conquering nation and the conquering people was a pleasing aroma. But to those who are in bondage, who are being pulled behind the carts and the horses and are being dragged in. It was not a, it was just aroma of death. That's what Paul is saying. He speaks, see, that's why we have to understand cultural context so that we're not taking scripture out of context. Because I'm going to show you one in just a second that has been horribly misused. 
So that's what's being said. There was an aroma. The incense was burning. And the people who were in, in, that, in, that, in that parade knew if you were a prisoner, it was an aroma of death. Death was just around the corner. But if you were part of the victorious team, it was a pleasing smell of victory. That's what Paul is saying. We are both. Why are we both? Because the gospel attracts and the gospel repels. Now, you shouldn't be offensive. That's why if you, you have to learn how to enter into the conversation on where these people are today. The gospel is offensive all by itself. So it's an aroma. An aroma of life and an aroma of death. Okay? See that? But here's... Let me make something clear. You know, we, we get a lot of... In, input from people in the community that we are an apologetic church. We are. And we teach and we preach and we're, we're totally focused with our kids to send them off to the academy and send them off to the university so that they understand their, their worldview and their faith. But let me make something perfectly clear. You're never going to win anybody into the kingdom through a cogent and coherent argument. That's not what we're doing. You're not going to win a debate and win people into the kingdom that way. That's not what apologetics is truly designed for. The longer I've walked and the deeper I've gone into apologetics, I believe the primary reason for it is it's for you, it's for the believer, because it strengthens your faith. It truly, it truly strengthens your understanding of your, your, your worldview and how coherent. It's the only one that's coherent. It's the only one that makes any sense. When you, you look around the world and you go, okay, how do I make sense of this? How do I make sense of those hurricanes that blew through? What kind of an angry God is sitting on some kind of a throne somewhere that sends that kind of stuff to, this, to these places? And the tsunami and this unimaginable devastation in an instant where hundreds and hundreds are wiped out. What kind of a God does that? No, you have to go further back and understand the storyline. God made everything good. It was man who messed it up. Mankind ruined it. And now even the creation groans. And every time you see a storm and lives are devastated, creation is groaning. And the creation goes, oh, Jesus, come back. That's the truth. And only your story makes sense of that truth. They can look and see what's going on, but they don't understand it. Doesn't make sense to them. We have a worldview that makes sense. So you can't win them into the kingdom with arguments, but we need to enter into the conversation. So we learn what they know, and we learn how to communicate it with love. The greatest apologetic is love, not argument. But here's what's taking place. Watch. It's the divine dismantling of the dominion of darkness. That's what preaching the gospel is. It's not putting together clever arguments to bring people. It's not that. It is a supernatural spiritual battle. The enemy is angry and will do anything to keep people from hearing the gospel. So they'll convince you, first of all, you, you don't, you, you're not worthy to even go speak it. So, so don't go anywhere. Then, then you, don't, you don't know enough to go speak it because they're going to ask you questions you don't have answers to. So don't go. You look foolish. And we're silent. And people are going to hell. It's a dismantling of the dominion of darkness. That's what the gospel is. This is an all-out fight. And you have been invited in and been given the power in Jesus' name. Watch this. Luke 10, 18, real brief, he replied, I saw Satan fall. We can, we, you go to a text, you understand it in its context. 
We could say that in view here is certainly Satan falling out of heaven. Why? Because Jesus was there. So you could go to Isaiah 14, 12, and we would use this. We would say that. But what's the context here? Well, listen to me. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me. Jesus says, I sent out 70, and through your message and through your miracles, as I stood here, I watched Satan falling over and over and over and over again like lightning. Every time you opened your mouth and you spoke life, and the gift of repentance and faith were given, and a dead person got up and walked, I saw Satan fall again and again and again because of you. That's the context of that passage. Yes, Jesus was there. He not only saw Satan fall like lightning, he booted him out of heaven. Because Satan wasn't satisfied being the great angelic host. He wanted to be like God. So he and a third got the boot. We read that in Revelation. So here the context is what? When you, listen, what, make it personal. When you preach the gospel, yep, it, I hope all of you have had this experience. If you haven't, you've you got to go you got to have it. You preach to somebody. You talk to somebody. You share with somebody. The heart is broken through maybe even a veil of tears. They come to faith. Do you realize what just happened? Satan has fallen again like lightning because of the power of the gospel that you've been given. It has nothing to do with you. You're a conduit. It just flows through you. The power of Jesus flowing through the believers. Watch this. This is important. And then the two and three are very brief. Romans 16, 20. Don't miss this. There's so much in this passage we could have spent Sunday just doing this, but we can't, so I'll be very brief. The God of peace. Let me just read the whole thing, and then let's just unpack it so that we're clear. Watch what's happening here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Okay, so now what's going on? Well, there's a couple things, right? First of all... What's going on? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What does that mean? Satan isn't crushed yet. So now, what does that mean? You're in the middle of a battle. No, you didn't hear me. You think I'm talking about the battle that you're in to go get souls saved. No, 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 no. You're in your own battle. If I'm not alone, nod your head. Right? If you're still doing things you ought not to do, nod your head. Good. I got you all on the internet. Good. I got it all picked out. No. Every bobblehead in here. Every single bobblehead. You better be bobbling that head. Okay, because every single one of us, inasmuch as sin no longer reigns, it remains. And we are still battling that. Steve Brown, one of the greatest, greatest lines I've ever heard. The dragon has been slain, but his tail still swishes. Swish it in my life. Just ask my wife. But it's telling you. First, you're in a battle, but soon he'll be crushed. Where? Under your feet. Oh, my word. But what is peace? So, 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 we, have to ident- so we have to identify it. We have to... What is peace? Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of Christ. I'll say it one more time. <laughs> People in the world have a funny understanding of what peace is. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of Christ in the middle of conflict. Do you understand that? Life is conflict from beginning to end. The old man is fighting. The old nature is fighting the new nature. It is a battle that rages. But now you then take that inner battle, and now you have to go take it out because you've got to battle with other people 
in getting them saved because God has called you to them. So the God of peace is soon going to crush Satan. Remember Genesis 3.15? See it? He will crush your head. You'll, you'll, you'll strike his heel. He'll crush. Under whose feet? What does Isaiah say? How beautiful are the mountains upon which the feet of those who carry the gospel. Oh, my word. How beautiful the mountains. Your feet. You have been called to carry the gospel. That's... Moving on. Number two. These will be real brief, and I want to be very sensitive here. So please hear me, and if you have questions, come up. What is the protection in Jesus? Let's be clear. In the Bible, perhaps 80 times, depending on your translation and how you read it, serpent is there, snake is there about 80 times. All the way from the garden to the wilderness wandering, Pharaoh's court, the island of Malta. He's everywhere. But the snake is a symbol of Satan. Is there anything wrong with the snake or scorpions? They're what we call amoral. Okay? Remember, in the beginning, God created everything. Did God create the snake? All right, and at the end, he puts his stamp of approval on everything, including you and the snake and the scorpion, and he says, it is very good. Okay? There's nothing wrong with the snake. The tree in the garden. You can eat of everything except for this tree. Something wrong with the tree? No, the tree was a test. Okay, so now that we know that there's nothing wrong with the snake and the scorpion, now we've got to try to figure out what's going on. So what's going on? We don't know what was going on in the garden. God gave Satan power to put, put words into the snake and the snake's talking to people. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I'll ask Adam and Eve when, when I get to the other side. What was that all about? But we know that that's what happened. God gave Satan the authority to do that. So the snake's talking somehow. There's nothing wrong with the snake. Snakes are amoral. So now... This is symbolic, so stay with me. Please don't miss this. 10.19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And I want to be sensitive here. You remember the back end of Mark, Mark 16? Mark 16 is in question, the last half. Was it in the original manuscripts? Was it not? It's in your Bible. But in Mark 16, 18, I believe, it talks about you will handle snakes and you will drink poison and you'll do all of these things. Listen to me carefully. And I want to be sensitive to the holiness movement. You go back to the beginning of the 20th century. There was this movement and it gained traction and it gained ground and other, other denominations got plugged into this holiness movement where you have what's called snake handling churches. That is not what this is saying. And yet they will say to you, listen, they'll say it to you this way. You can interview a son of a father and a grandfather, generations before that were killed handling snakes in that church. And you will hear the son say to you, I understand what's happened, but we are called by God and only those who are truly faithful to the word of God will actually do this. That's the point of understanding this being taken out of context. That's why I spent a little more time earlier to show you the context of the aroma. That's not what this is. This is symbolic. When Jesus says, I am the door, everyone knows that Jesus said, I am the door? When you go to heaven, are you going to look for hinges? You say, Pastor, that's silly. I know it's silly. That's not what he... it It was a metaphor. 
You have to understand genre in Scripture when you come to Scripture. You can't just read it all the same. This is not for snake handling. It is not. My heart goes out to them who misunderstand this. The Appalachian Mountains are, are, are filled with churches that are doing this. Finally, Tennessee got involved, and they made a law. said, can't do this in Tennessee. Get this out. You can't do this. This is not a religious right. There's something wrong. But that's not what this is. This is, this is symbolic of what? Evil and darkness and Satan and, and all of the bad stuff in the world. That's what this is. So please, please, no, no snake handling. Marty, can you bring the snakes down now, please? No, I said that last night, Saturday night, and, and, and the praise team was on the front row, and Lisa almost fell over the back of the chair. That's not what we're asked to do. Not to be drinking poison and messing with fire and handling snakes. Psalm 140. So put it together. Their tongue is sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. That's all. It's a picture of evil. It's how evil speaks and talks. And there was a time, listen, the, the, even the psalmist. So, so listen, our, 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 our poetic writers of Scripture, there was a time when it was thought that the venom came through the tongue. The forked tongue, science has disproven that, and we know it comes through the fangs. But that's why you would read something like this. The tongue is as sharp as a serpent, and under their lips is the venom of ass. It was believed at that time it was the tongue that would shoot out the venom. But, it, it's, but that's the picture, poetically, of evil. Okay? That's all. Picture of evil. Moving on from there. Isaiah 59.5, the prophets likened the wicked, wicked they're, they're likening the wicked to those that what? Hatch the eggs of vipers. That's all. That's all they're doing. Jeremiah 51, 51.34, this is about the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. So what's said about him? He is the picture of ultimate evil. So what's written about him in Jeremiah? The, in, Gen- in Jeremiah, like a serpent. He has swallowed us and spewed us out. The weeping prophet likens the king of Babylon to the serpent. So we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, and what do we see? So the Lord said to the serpent. No one knows what all that's about, but that's in the Scripture, and that's going on. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There's the serpent, and then we go to the very end where? Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. No snake handling, no scorpion, nothing wrong with those things. It's symbolic. Now, there is a day coming, listen, right? There's a day coming when, when you've read it. And again, you have to keep things in their context, but you do know there's a day coming when the lion will lie down with the lamb. Just be careful how you read the individual passages, right? And the scorpion and the snakes you'll no longer trample on. Why? Because all things will be made new. And then there'll be no more, no more hostility and fighting and, and things eating each other. And all that's gone. The new heavens and the new earth. So that day is coming. That will come. The child will be able to hold the snake. And, and so all of those pictures are real. But it's... But understanding prophecy... It's now. It's happened now. Jesus has conquered the snake. So we handle the snake now. What's the snake? The evil one. And we handle that snake. We trample that snake under our feet. The feet that bring the good news of the gospel. That's all. Okay? Moving on to our final point, and then we'll go to the table together. 
What's the preservation through Jesus? This is beautiful. Boy, if this doesn't comfort you today, it comforts. See, I get to do this all week, right, as I'm preparing. I was in class all week. Thank you again for your prayers all week long in an intensive class. But when I had time during the day or certainly late, late, late at night, I was working through this. And, and I get, you get to see it once, you know, and, and it hits you right over the head. I get to get through it all week long. And this was just so comforting to me to know the truth of this passage that I got to work through during the week. Well, take a look here. Uh, verse 20. This is, this is really powerful. However, Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Okay? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, so a couple questions you ask when you read something like that. What is that? What, where, where, does, where does that come from? You have to, when you come to the New Testament, you have to ask some questions. What is the names written in heaven? Where are you making that one up from, Jesus? Well, he's not making it up. Names written is an is a Old Testament motif. It's also in the ancient world. What did they do in the ancient world? In the ancient world, cities would have books. And they would have books where they would record in those cities names of people who were in good standing. It was a good standing book, and you'd have the names listed in the book. So that's real in the ancient world. In the Old Testament, it is real that we have the motif of the book over and over and over again. So Jesus is telling us what? I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All of it comes together in me. Watch this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So let's go back and take a look. Exodus 32. Please forgive. Moses is speaking. Please forgive their sin, but if not, blot me. So Moses knew. Blot me out of the book that you have written. He knew that by way of inspiration, he knew there was a book that had his name in it. But he said, blot me out if, if, you, won't, if you won't forgive them. I, I, I'll take their sin. Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my it's up to me, not you. Psalm 69, 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. You find it in Isaiah 4. You find it in Daniel 12. It's, it, that motif is all throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you one from Revelation, and then we'll, we'll close. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names not Star and circle, not written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So, let me ask you this question. It's important. Remember that each city had a book. That was a temporal book. That was an earthly book. God has an eternal book. It goes on and on and on and on. But let me ask you this question. How would you possibly rejoice in something that you knew nothing about? Stay with me. So Jesus says to them, don't rejoice in the stuff that you've just done. Now, you know what you've done. You, you saw what you did. You, you were healing the sick. You were preaching the gospel. You're casting out demons. But don't rejoice in that. I want you to rejoice in something else, that your name is written in, 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 in the book in heaven. So how do they know their name is there? Well, Jesus told them. How do you know? If your name is there. Do you know how many millions of people right now today? Today, listen to me. Depending on where you are in the world. But went to, went to service this weekend. All over the globe. How many millions have no idea when and if their name will ever be written in the book? They don't know. They do not understand the doctrine of the assurance of your salvation. Let me make something perfectly clear to you. 
That passage is to bring you the greatest comfort that you have ever received. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you know that it's written there? You know by way of the inner witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You bet you do. Now listen to another statement and make sure you hear me clearly so that you don't come after me after the service and say, oh, Pat, listen to what I'm saying. And this is helpful in the church because there's so many people running around saying, you know, I don't think she's saved. Man, she's always raising her hands in the service. I don't know where she gets that from. I don't know if he's saved. I, 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 I heard some things about, don't go do that. Don't do any of that. Let me make this clear. Listen to me. I don't, it's on the internet. I don't know if you're saved. And you don't know if I'm saved. That is shocking to many people for me to say something like that. For you to hear that. Listen to me, I'm going to say it one more time. I do not know if you're saved and you don't know if I am saved. By their fruit you will know them. So we gather together because we're fruities, right? We're fruit loops, right? So we gather together. On the night he was betrayed, who at the table knew the betrayer? Only Jesus. Lord, is it me? Is it me? Who, who is it? I don't know, and you don't know me, but you better know if you are, and I know if I am. You understand the point? It keeps us from running around trying to figure out the wheat and the tares. Lord, should we go and pull them out? Stop. You have no idea who's in and who's out. I know. Lord of the harvest, I'll fix, I'll take care of that at the end. You just go plant water. I'll supply the increase. Stop this. Do you know you're his? Say it. Yes, I know. Of course you know. You have the inner witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit that convinces you that you're his. Your heart beats for Jesus, but it beats him perfectly. This isn't the doctrine of perfection. It's the doctrine of assurance. When Jesus showed up on the night of the first Easter morning, He comes into the upper room, and what is the word he says to them? Peace. How would you have any peace if you didn't know you were his? How would you have any peace if you weren't sure your name was written in the book? And some teach, well, your name can be written, but sometimes they use a little whiteout up there. Stop. There's no whiteout in heaven. It's in, it's in, it's in. Stop! Millions live in fear claiming the name of Christ because they have no assurance. You need to know. If you don't come see me, you know if you're his. You know, you want to know how you know most deeply. Because when you do stuff you shouldn't do, it really bothers you. If it doesn't bother you, come see me. But you know it bothers you. It breaks your heart. And you know something's wrong. Not living a perfect life. It's living a life for the perfect one, imperfectly. How do we close? Glory not. Listen to this. Glory not. In what God has done through you, in as much as it's great to see what God has done through all of us, isn't it a wonderful thing? But don't do that. But glory in what God has done to you. Glory in that. God has raised you from death to life. 
God has given you the gift of repentance and faith. God has given you the confident assurance that he who began a good work will complete it one day soon. You have that. That is yours because of Christ. Jesus is our serpent, crushing, dragon, slayer. Is he yours? If there's anyone here this morning that you're not sure, you've never surrendered control to Christ, or by way of the internet, and we always assume there is, know this, right now is a moment of salvation. By lunch, it might be too late. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. I didn't say that. The book did. The book is true. The book is clear. So now is a moment of salvation. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ is saying to you, Come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, to Christ alone. Lay your good works down. Lay your prayers down. Lay your, your, your service down. Lay everything that you've done down and come to me just as you are, and I will give you rest. The first level of rest is resting from your self-salvation project. You don't have to work on it anymore. You're his. The second rest is coming. Millions today working, working, Working for God's favor. Stop that. Work, work, work. Because it flows out of a heart that knows what it's already been given. But don't work because you hope for something to get. Because of your good works. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, I have paid the penalty for your sins. Every one has been nailed to the cross and cleansed by my blood. Come, trust in me alone. That's the gospel. That's the truth. Let's pray. If you've never prayed it, pray with me now. And every believer in this room, pray the words that I say. There's no magic formula in prayer. You can pray anything, but we're going to just pray. And if you've never prayed by way of the internet, pray with me now. That this is a moment of salvation. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus, the only name, heaven, which men will be saved, the only name right now, all the believers we ask, that you pray these words, oh God, I've heard the gospel today. I've heard its truth. I know that you are creator God and that man has fallen. And in that fall, I have fallen too. I know I'm a sinner and I cannot fix myself. But I've heard the message today that I need only trust in Christ alone. So Father, I trust in Jesus today as my Lord and Savior. I transfer my trust from myself to him. I give my heart to you. And now I know with confident assurance that what, what you have begun in me, you will one day bring to completion. I confess my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn from my sins as much as it is within my power, and I turn to you by grace through faith. And I know from this moment forward that I am yours. I thank you in Jesus' name. And Father, for every believer who has walked for decades, Strengthen all of us in our faith. Grow us up into Christ. Use us as instruments of salvation. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Before we fast-